Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Joining me on the show today is Dr. Jeffrey Hull. He's the best-selling author of the book Flex. He's a Harvard faculty member, a C-suite coach, and CEO and founder of Leadershift Inc. But before we get a chance to speak with Jeff, it's the Leadership Hacker News. As generations have passed through the workforce, they've become more transient and no more so than Gen Z. Gen Z's had enough, according to a recent Adobe survey. 5,500 workers found that 56% of those aged between 18 and 24 in the workplace say they're planning to switch jobs within the next year. Research from Microsoft and Bankrate backs this up, reporting that 54% and 77% of Gen Z's respectively are thinking about quitting in their organisations. Sometimes these statements don't always line up with actions, but across the globe a record number of Gen Z quit their job in April, equivalent to twice the number of the previous April. Anthony Klotz, a business professor at Texas A&M University, has deemed this the Great Resignation, a term that's caught fire in recent months. Klotz explained that many employees only stay at their jobs because the cost of leaving is higher than the cost of staying, and this ratio has shifted for many workers in the past year. He goes on to say, the costs of staying have risen due to burnout, while the costs of quitting have decreased due to unexpected pandemic savings. So how as leaders can we avoid this exodus? Here's a few ideas that will get our Gen Z workers wanting to stay. Ignite their passion. We all have differences, and Gallup have recently concluded that the great resignation is actually just a great disconnect. So rather than being an issue with pay or industry or working conditions, the pandemic has changed the way people work and how they behave. So reversing the tide in any team or organisation requires leaders who care, who engage, and who give our workers a sense of purpose. Really find what it is that turns them on, makes them successful and energetic, and align their work to that passion. Banish the busyness syndrome. One of the real issues ushered by the pandemic was the need for newly remote workers to look busy, particularly for those who were young and relatively unproven in their careers, trying to make a name for themselves. Half of remote workers in a recent study showed they were worried that their manager had doubts about their productivity, leading to 44% to work longer hours and 37% to even skip breaks, which of course naturally is going to impact on productivity negatively. In the Adobe research, it suggested that 86% said that their tasks were now becoming more mundane and repetitive. And therefore, as leaders, we've got a real opportunity to strive to banish the busyness syndrome and find things that are purposeful, meaningful, and give people the opportunity to be creative. And the last thing that comes out in this survey is get rid of the nine to five mentality. 
Of the workers in the Adobe study who planned to switch jobs in the next year, 61% said they wanted more control over their schedule. And this applies particularly to Gen Zs, as only 62% say their most productive hours fell between 9 and 6. It's time for our leaders to banish the idea of that mandatory 9 to 5. Just exploring why people can be more productive outside those hours can really unlock talent, unlock ideas and creativity. The rules for leading people have changed. Even in turbulent times, the key particularly to retaining Gen C employees is not a mystery. Retention requires an intentional commitment as leaders to understand to their unique needs and demands. We can't expect Gen Z to behave like Gen X, Gen Y, or baby boomers. They've been born into a different world and have different perspectives. And the war for talent is definitely putting pressure on organisations and teams to provide the next-gen employees the opportunity to be successful. So the leadership lesson here is, create some awareness, hear and understand how our Gen Zs are thinking, feeling and behaving, and make sure you can adapt and provide them with the opportunities to grow, notwithstanding maintaining great standards and expectations. That's been the Leadership Hacker News. We'd love to hear from you if you have any insights, stories or quirky things that we'd love to get on the show. So please get in touch. Joining me on the show today is Dr. Jeffrey Hull. He's the CEO and founder of Leadership Inc. He's the Director of Global Development at Harvard's Institute of Coaching. And he's also a faculty member of Harvard Medical School. He's a speaker and the author of the book, Flex. Jeff, welcome to the Leadership Hacker Podcast. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. So you have a really fascinating story and loads of experience. And I'd love to just start with a bit of a summary, if you like, of how you've arrived at uh, leading the organization you do now. Well, I think it's probably the, the easiest way to sum up my career is in three phases. Uh, early phase after college um, and graduate school was in HR, working for the consultancy based in New York, global um, strategy firm called Booz Allen and Hamilton that many people know. I was a, uh, I worked my way up early in my career to a director of HR role, where at that point I discovered that the fa my favorite part of that job was mentoring and coaching um, the up and coming leaders. And it was really kind of early in the coaching profession. So I don't know that I had the option to become a professional coach at that point, but I knew I liked that part of my work. So when I had an opportunity in the second phase of, the, of these three um, to jump into an entrepreneurial stage of career, a good friend of mine who was an investment banker, we were in New York at the time, we got together, we started a company to do leadership development consulting, and over the next five to seven years, built a pretty successful practice with leadership training, customized seminars and retreats, and with financial organizations, software companies. Um, you know, we worked back and forth between Europe and New York. And uh, over that time, I've kind of honed my training and development skills, but also started doing more coaching. And that led to the third phase, which I guess I'm still in, which is uh, eventually really kind of fo honing in on executive coaching. And so for the last 15 years or so, I've really um, developed a pretty wide ranging practice of executive coaching in all different industries, whether it's still in the, in the financial space, but also software, tech, 
pharma, and then more recently doing a lot of work in healthcare, where I got connected to Harvard Medical School and the folks at the Harvard Institute of Coaching. And that's kind of where I kind of give, give back in my career. Um, I work part-time as one of the leaders of the Institute. And it's really an opportunity for me to get involved with research and education around uh, scientific or evidence-based underpinnings of this profession that we call coaching, which these days I think it's safe to say is a profession, but, you know, it's still, it's still a growth phase. I mean, it hasn't been around that long. That's so, right. It's still quite a relatively yeah. new notion, isn't it? Right. Coaching. Right. In an organizational sense, of course. Exactly. Yeah. And you've also, as part of your work and your studies as an organizational psychologist over the last 20 years, have kind of really developed a, a, an interesting spin on things. And, and you have this notion of organizational anthropology. <laughs> and I'd love to learn a little bit more about what that means and how it differs. Well, I think that that's just my euphemism for going below the surface and being a bit of a detective of what is going on within an organization that may not be explicit and may not be visible, may not be seen, but may actually be having a huge influence or impact on the organizational success or on the leadership's um, way of interacting with their people. So I was trained originally in my doctoral program in Jungian psychology. There's another quick phase I went through earlier where I wanted to be a psychotherapist. Um, that's a long story we'll do for another day. But um, out of that training came my recognition that a lot of the time, the way things are really happening in organizations are sort of implicit or unknown or invisible or invisible. And so the anthropological part of me is looking at my coaching opportunities with clients to dig under the surface like what's not so obvious that's going on in the dynamic with the team or the way you interact with your people as a leader and having an opportunity for people to feel safe in a coaching dynamic, then they can reflect on some of these blind spots where they're not even aware of the way they're coming across or the way they're interacting with their people. And that can be helpful, I think, in two, in two ways. One, it can help the leader become more self-aware and then secondly, it can also help with the culture building aspects of organizations right. because a lot of the aspects of culture, as you know, are more implicit. They're more kind of the way things we do around here. And, you know, this is the way we put our offices or this is how we operate in virtual calls these days or whatever it is. But they're sort of the unwritten rules. So that's what I mean by kind of the anthropological lens, like looking under the surface and getting into the shadows, so to speak. And that's a skill, that's a massive skill to get below those couple of layers because we all come with our, our lenses and we all come with our layers. What are the things that you've noticed that really help you to be able to get really deep and underneath those kind of layers? Well, I think a lot of it is being an observer of dynamics between individuals and their teams that they don't even notice. You know, I look for, and I wrote about this in my book for, as an example, I look for the somatic or the energetic dynamic that's going on between a leader and their people, not just what they say, 
Um, by that, I mean, you know, in, in a live space, an example would be how they handle the energy of the team dynamic in terms of the where, where they sit, how they set up their office, um, the timing, who participates and who doesn't, um, power seats and, you know, presence, like, you know, how do they hold their body as a leader? Do they lean in or do they lean back? Do they... Um, do they look at people directly or do they often kind of look distracted and are they on their, t on they are on their cell phone being, you know, texting and things like that. So some of the more subtle physical elements are ways to d detect kind of what's really going on underneath the surface, despite what people may be saying. And I would add that that shows up ex even more or, or expi explicitly in these virtual situations where we're now like on zoom calls or microsoft teams or whatever and all of those things my clients are often surprised when they hear from me that some of the more nonverbal, physical presence dynamics are actually even are even exaggerated in the virtual space that's really fascinating most writing or articles i've certainly read in the the last 18 months two years as we've been going through this crazy world suggest the opposite how have you managed to fine-tune your skills and your acuity to find that in what you do well it's a great question but it starts with some of the basic scientific principles and i mentioned i wrote about some of this in my book too which is you know we're learning more and more about how people operate when they feel a sense of psychological safety or how they build trust or what it takes to operate at high performing levels. And these things often trace back to physical um, or somatic energy issues, such as eye contact and feeling like you're um, being listened to. You know, that that's sort of a subtle thing. Like when you ask someone, how do you know when, when you're being heard? You know, that's kind of a subtle question. How do you know, right? So when you think about that question in the virtual space, it becomes quite granular. And the studies have shown that things like direct eye contact and smiling and on a virtual call, showing your hands occasionally, not just being, you know, the talking head from the neck up. Those small gestures, those small uh, things actually make a lot of difference. People feel more connected. They feel more heard when you look directly into your camera rather than looking distracted. Now, that's true in the real world, but it's even more exaggerated in the virtual space. Right, yeah. So a lot of what I do for my coaching around how to become more effective in those Zoom calls or those Microsoft Team calls is to pay attention to the way you're paying attention. Mm right? Conscious consciousness. Exactly. And know your habits. Like if you've, if, as a leader, you've developed, we all have our little bad habits, you know, like looking down and taking notes or occasionally glancing at my cell phone or, oops, I got a text message, better read it. <clears throat> that's all, you know, even, even in the real world, that's a little bit distracting, but in the virtual space, it can come across as downright rude. Yeah. Yeah, it can, can't it? Yeah, exactly. Now, the book that you've written, Flex, The Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World, if ever there was a time to have written a book, <laughs> right, now is it? 
Uh, tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind the book and maybe some of the key themes it covers. Well, the inspiration for the book was really more on a sort of macro level, which is that in my executive coaching practice and in my work with the Harvard Institute, where I get to interact, you know, as part of a community of hundreds of coaches around the world, you know, there was a sense that the demographics and the dynamics of what it takes to be successful in a leadership context were changing rapidly in the last few years. And I think it's now become pretty well known that organizations are becoming flatter, more networked, more democratic, more interconnected, more multicultural, more multinational. I mean, the whole thing with the pandemic and virtual work has just exaggerated all of that. But what that leads to, of course, is you have a new generation of leaders stepping up that don't always come the same way as the ones that I coached early in my career. For example, they're not all white men and they're not all charismatic and they're not all authoritative leaders. Hmm. So there's a lot more variety than there used to be. And what I'm called on to coach around things like emotional intelligence and building trust and getting high performing um, teams to be cohesive and work together in alignment with a vision. You know, these things are more complex and the good news is there's some good research on how to make that happen. And so what led to the book was basically my recognition that, you know, we needed to kind of move on from what I consider to be the paradigm of, you know, probably 2000 years of leadership, you know, the, the fan, you know, the white guy coming in on the horse to lead the troops with the vision and the, and the directive style not that that's really not appropriate um, when I'm under the surgeon's knife. I definitely hope he's a nice, authoritative, uh, directive person. Or when I'm sitting on an airplane, I expect my pilot to be authoritative and directive. But, you know, in most situations these days, there's room for a lot more variety. And uh, sometimes, in fact, there's a a benefit to bringing in the more consensus-driven, collaborative, um, maybe the leader who leads by following or building a coalition. And so that's really what led me to want to describe in the book case studies and coaching examples of a really much wider, diverse range of what I consider to be sort of the next generation of leadership. Definitely so. You state actually in the book that we're in this age of the post-heroic leader. Right. So how might that have looked and what would be the stark differences? Well, I think the fundamental theme is that the traditional archetype is that heroic leader, right? So the, as I mentioned before, you know, the knight that comes in on the horse to save the world. And that is a very individualistic definition of leadership, that it's a particular person with a particular personality that has, that shows talent, that has high potential. Um, and they, you know, they need to be groomed and then they run off and lead the world. And, you know, as you're getting back to my quite your question about anthropology, you know, that's an archetype. It's not a fact. Yeah. And so in today's world, there's much more space for a whole broad range of leaders to be impactful. And some of the most influential leaders that I work with are not like that at all. They're actually more introverted. 
They're actually more consensus building. They're actually good listeners. They actually create an environment that more and more people can lead as a team. So this, the, the fundamental shift is from an individualistic approach to leadership to a team or community or a group-focused way of leading. And that sort of collective approach can be equally effective. So I consider that to be post-heroic in the sense that there's no longer always just one singular individual leading the charge. And the best leaders, and I think I, I dig into this in the book, are those that really understand the benefits of both end of, ends of the spectrum, what I call the alpha, which is the heroic type, and then the beta, which is really more of a consensus builder. And equally, they bring different skills and attributes to a team. I guess the key here is finding others around you that have different perspectives and more diversity, right? Absolutely. And that's probably where you're pointing there is one of the fundamental themes of my book, which is that this, this adage that there are only a few people in any organization that are considered the high potentials. Um, that we should, you know, give extra training or extra focus. I really think that's an outdated meme mm. that the best teams these days recognize that there's leadership potential in everyone. Yeah. So as a leader, as a leader, your job is to uncover that talent and nurture and exploit or take advantage or leverage the talent in all of your people. And that's really massive for me when, when I hear you play that back because I instantaneously think back to when I was in leading businesses and I was working in HR. You have a typical talent grid, maybe a nine box grid, and you identify who's talent and who's not. I wonder how different the world would be today if all of those nine boxes were classed as talent yet we just reframed it in a different way? Well, you know, it's so interesting you mentioned that because I too um, have come full circle around that dynamic. And one of the things that I do with my clients now that are like heads of HR or chief operating officers or even CEOs is I will support them to go through that exercise to identify those individuals in their organization that show, you know, really what I would consider to be evident talent, like they're sort of a natural born leader, right? So, oh, those are the superstars. So we've, we, we create our nine box or whatever it is that we're doing to evaluate for succession planning. We create our list of the top tier of the next generation of talent. So that's cool. But then what I do is I throw the, a wrench in the mix, which I say when I say, okay, I want you to go through the, your talent pool and I want you to pull out all the people you think are not high potential. Top 10, top 50, you know, what are those people that you think are real questionable? And so we go through that exercise and then I throw the second wrench, which is, okay, I want you to reflect on whether or not the people you just threw on the dust pile or on the trash bin are the most talented people in the organization. Interesting. What if you think of the people who have the least potential as the ones who have the untapped most potential? How would that change the way you operate? Really neat. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, it's the, I'm, I'm literally playing it through in my mind as you're, you're describing it. What it really tells us is that there are lots that we just don't know about people. 
there are lots that we just don't understand about their capability. And ironically, we might never know if we exclude them from some of those conversations. Yeah, and I'll give you two examples. I mean, what you're really pointing to when you go through that exercise is number one, if you're in a if you're in a leadership seat and you're going through the list of potentials, you know, all the people on your team that have been working for you, let's say for a year, two years, three years, and you pick out the ones you think are obviously high potential. Well, guess what? They're all going to be just like you. That's the stereotype. Right. We, we, you know, our affinity is for people who are like us. Oh, I love Mary. She does a lot of the same things that I used to do when I was a child. Like, great. Okay. So that's just keeping the stream moving of everybody being the same. But the other side of the coin is the people that you're kind of frustrated by or, oh, God, you know, that guy, he doesn't have a lot of potential. He works in the middle of the night. He never shows up at 9 a.m. like everybody else. Oh, okay. So what do you, he has no potential, but he's a maverick. Oh, maybe he's super creative. Maybe he's very, very innovative, but doesn't toe the line. So the people at the other end of the spectrum, as I said, that you as a leader are kind of dismissing because they don't fall into your stereotype of following, the, of towing the line the way you do to become a, a leader may actually be the most creative, innovative, talented, maverick folks in your whole organization. Mm. They may be secretly working at two o'clock in the morning to, on solving the problem that will make you millions. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's worth taking a second look, I guess, is the bottom line, right? Definitely so. Now, you call the book Flex the art and science of leadership. And I wonder, for most people listening to this, they'll get the science because it's prevalent. Now, we talk about neuroscience. We talk about some of the tools and techniques and the Jungian approach you talked about earlier. But what about art? Is leadership really an art? Yes, because I think there's an intuitive, creative, almost... Uh, really hard to put your finger on a piece of interconnectivity with people that is kind of poetic or musical. Or if you think of the, the, the works of art that stand the test of time, they would be hard pressed to be created through scientific means, right? right? They're, they're special, they're unique. And, and so I think that's what I'm pointing at when I say, you know, the good news is we have more evidence about what it takes to lead a group, to build trust, to build alignment, to share a vision with communication strategies that really connect the dots for people so that they'll follow. I mean, we do know what it takes to do that. We've done studies. But on the other end of the spectrum, if you run your team all through data, all through science, you know, people are not robots people are creative, intuitive beings, and you want to tap into the imagination. You want to tap into that sort of unspoken, intuitive side. And as I said earlier, sort of learn to nurture the mavericks. If people are acting a little crazy, and I gave you that example where I did have a statistics guy who was refusing to work during the day because he was just super creative late at night and his boss was frustrated with him. <laughs> and, um, you know, I had a counterintuitive coaching dis discussion with my client because I said, instead of being mad at this guy, why don't you dig underneath? What's what's that creative impulse that shows up in him at 2 a.m.? Mm -hmm. How do you nurture that? Yeah. So that's the art side of it. I buy that. And I wonder how much mindset plays into this whole principle of 
me being a leader and thinking of myself as artistic in my trade? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what I'm, that's kind of what I get into when I talk about the anthropo, anthropologic. I ask my clients, you know, when you think about blind spots, that's sort of a paradox, right? Because a blind spot is something you can't see. So therefore, how could you know what it is? And that is often an opening for a conversation with my clients around the benefit of, first of all, being open to feedback. And second of all, to see that the people that you're getting feedback from, if they have your best interests at heart, are going to point out things to you that are going to be super supportive in expanding your skills, expanding your repertoire. And that, you know, everything that you think you're doing is that's great is not necessarily seen, not necessarily what, what you know. I mean, it may be some of your hidden talents that are showing up that people are taking advantage of or aware of. And so learning about those sort of unseen Gifts, I think, is a really important element of being an effective leader and doing the same thing with your folks. Also, I love the way you framed that, by the way, the unseen gifts just allows us to receive it in the way of a gift, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's exactly the way I try to because it because, again, going back to the science, we now know that if you frame things positively as opposed to problematically, then people can look at something that appears to be negative and reframe it with a mindset that turns it into an opportunity. Yeah. Love it. And you have a model that you help your leaders with called fierce F I E R C E love for you just to spin through how we might use that as leaders in our work. Well, that was simply a distillation of a lot of the research and interviews and focus groups that I did with my, with my clients and with many, many coaches that I work with to discover what are the areas that leaders need to really hone in on in today's world to be effective. So there are six dimensions that just keep coming up over and over again. One is decision-making and developing a flexible style. So that gets back to the core of what we talked about before, which was, you know, are you authoritative and decisive or are you flexible in being more democratic and consensus building? And both are valuable, but they're two, two ends of a spectrum. The second is the acronym in, uh, in FIERCE is the letter I, which is intentional. So being more intentional in your communication style. And we've already talked a little bit about that. Looking really closely at not just the words you use, but the way you communicate, the tone, the eye contact, the gestures, the use of humor, all the different components of effective persuasion and influence. The third, the letter E, is emotional intelligence and becoming aware of the key side of human beings, which is emotions, is crucial. You know, developing your, emo your own emotional intelligence is like a muscle that leaders these days cannot avoid developing. The next one is R in the, in the acronym, and that's developing your, building up your integrity and your credibility through authenticity or what I call realness. And that connects to being more humble and, and knowing when to be transparent and open and vulnerable. So a lot of leaders tend to focus on competencies and strengths, which is great, 
But at the other end of the spectrum, you also need to be humble and vulnerable and connect to your people as a human being. And that's kind of the other end of the spectrum. So all of the different components of being an authentic leader are just, are absolutely crucial today. And then the final two components have to do with collaboration. You know, the letter C for me started to dig into how do we effectively become coaches for our people? You know, it's great to have a coach, but you also need to become a coach. So I dug into some of the science that we use at the Institute of Coaching around becoming an effective coach for your people, listening, asking good questions, creating a sense of safety, confidentiality, knowing the difference, for example, between mentoring and coaching, because they're not the same thing. And then finally, the letter E is about how to engage with your team. And we spoke a little bit about that in terms of how to create an environment that gets the best out of everyone, whether you're in a virtual space or in a real office or in a hybrid. And that focuses on the energy that you exude as a leader, your nonverbal communication, how you create the space for people to show up, how you facilitate introverts and extroverts. So it's really sort of stepping back and, and looking at some of the key principles of creating um, and motivating an environment where everyone can operate at their best. I love the model. I love the framework. It really helps people get into that space of ask yourself some questions around each of those six acronyms. Right. Exactly. That was my intent. And yeah, and you'll start to find out then what you need to kind of pull the levers on, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I, and, you know, and, and what I did is then I brought a lot of case studies in. So that as you're reading through some of the science or some of the themes, there are lots of different examples of people sort of at different ends of the spectrum in all those categories. And so the idea was to be able to reflect on your own leadership style, whether you're early in your career or whether you're the CEO and say to yourself, oh, I recognize myself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It starts with us as leaders, doesn't exactly. it? It starts with us. Exactly. And in terms of leadership, I'm going to spin the, the tone a little now, try and hack into your leadership brain. Okay. Having led businesses and teams uh, over a number of different years, I'm going to try and ask you now to take all of that learning and distill it into your top three leadership hacks. What would they be? Top three. Well, my top one is to own your blind spots. Like as a leader, one of the most humbling aspects is to even recognize that you might have blind spots. So if you have a starting point from saying to yourself, okay, I'm a human being, I must have a blind spot. What is it? So go on a, you know, like almost an architect, architect what would be the word? An archetypal dig into your own blind spots. Ask your friends, ask your spouse. Don't be afraid <laughs> yeah. to find out what it is that gets in the way of your operating at your finest. Um, that's, that's number one. That's a big one too. And I'll tell you, I have a funny story about this. When I was coached by my coach uh, a couple of years back, and um, we were talking about blind spots and, and I had this really crazy moment of going, no, I just don't see it. I just don't recognize it. And then he went, uh -huh, it's a blind spot. Yeah. <laughs> oh exactly. yeah. Okay. Yep. So it, just, just starting point of being aware that you might have a blind spot is a really important step as a leader because it's humbling. And it gets you going onto an investigation where you may be open to feedback. Right. Number two, 
uh, hack is kind of along those lines. And I call that to know the strengths list of your people. Because if we're going to move from what I from this heroic style of leadership to a more group or post-heroic style, then what you need to do is to know your people. And the best way to do that is to put together a short list of their strengths. So I make all of my clients do this exercise, which is if you have 10 people reporting to you or you have five people reporting to you, get out a notebook and write down the top three strengths of every single person on your team. Because if you have that as a handy dandy available um, note, you'll be able to use that when things get tight or there's a crisis or there's an upset because you'll be able to say, oh, but Mary, you're so good at X, Y, and Z. I need to know what happened when this didn't happen right. So knowing the strengths of your people is really important. And you'd be surprised how many leaders don't take the time. They're like, oh, yeah, I like Mary and Susie's good. And I gotta, I got, I'm not so sure about Peter. But then when I dig one level below that and I say, yeah, but what's Peter's number one strength? They're like, um, never thought about that question. It's a so, great situational hack, isn't it? Exactly. For those opportunities, yeah. Yep. Know your top three. Know the top three strengths of all your people. And then the hack number three, which I think is the real punchline of this of this whole line of questioning is know how the strength becomes a liability. Would that be an overplayed strength? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Know the strengths of your people and then, and yourself. So know your own strengths and then ask yourself, when does that strength get me into trouble? Love that. Because 90% of the coaching I've done in my life, we have ended up somewhere where wherever the big talent is of my client, is also their their liability. Mm. They overuse it. They rely on it too much. One trick pony. Whatever way you want to articulate it, it's incredibly common that the thing that we do super well often becomes the thing that trips up trips us up when we want to go to the next level. Mm-hmm. It's it goes back to Marshall Goldsmith who I'm a big fan, I'm one of his 100 coaches. What got you here won't get you there, right? His right. his best-selling book. And the theme of that book is really whatever it was that got you to where you are is probably going to get in the way of getting you to the next place. Very very good. Like that a lot. Next part of the show Jeff we call hack to attack. So this is typically where something in your work or life hasn't worked out as you planned. May have been even that we've screwed up in the process. But as a result <laughs> of the process, we've learned from it. And it's now serving us well in our life or our work. So what would be your hack to attack? Oh, that one is, uh, I love that question because it's actually really easy, but embarrassing. But hey, you know, that's life. It's uh, humbling. Let's do it. <laughs> no, but the truth is I was very fortunate that I screwed up very early in my career, right out of college, I was hired as a recruiter for a tech company. And I was only in my early 20s. And I, you know, had a got a fancy cube, I didn't get an office, but I got a very fancy cube. And I got a secretary, I had an admin. And within the very first few weeks of my job, what did I do? I asked my secretary to get coffee for me. I was like, Oh, can you do this? Can you do that? I was like, oh my God, I have my secretary. She's going to do things for me. And about a month later, my boss came to me and he was like, um, Jeff, I have to um, sit you down and 
just discuss the way we work around here because this was a tech company. And then even though it was quite a few years ago, even back then, it was really a more egalitarian environment. And he said, you know what, Jeff, you really should learn to get your own coffee. And I looked at him and I was like, what? He goes, your administrative assistant is really there to support you to do your job better, not just to be your lackey. Like, you know, she can get coffee. It's not really a problem. But is that really the best way to treat people? And so it wasn't so much the getting the coffee that was the issue. It was my attitude. Yeah. And that was humbling. And I was young and I was immature. And but I have to tell you that that advice, treat people well, realize that even the person who takes your coat or the receptionist who welcomes you in the door or the administrative assistant who's just setting up the coffee and the bagels for the meeting, those are human beings. And not only are they deserving of respect, but as I've learned over the years, they also have a lot of inside information. They do, don't they? Yeah. Big allies. Exactly. So like 10 years later, when I was the director of HR and I had learned my lesson and I learned to be respectful, I remember we were interviewing MBA candidates and what I would do at the end of the day, they would come in from Harvard and Northwestern and Stanford and Yale and be very arrogant and, you know, just as I probably was back when I was in that age bracket. And I would say to the receptionist, okay, so tell me who the... Who should I hire and who should I not hire? Mm, first impressions. And her, her, yeah, exactly. Her name was Irene. And she said to me, you know, Jeff, don't hire that. Don't hire that guy. And I'm like, yeah, but he came across really smart in the interviews. Yeah. And she goes, yeah, but he was really rude to me when he first came in. He basically threw his coat at me to hang up. And, you know, that's the fundamental lesson. Treat people with respect no matter where they are in the organization because they are part of the fabric of the team. And not only do they deserve to be treated well, deserve to be treated with respect, but they also have a lot of insights. So that, is, that was my big learning. And I, you know, I'm not perfect. I probably still snap at someone once in a while, but I really took it to heart that, you know, it's the people at the lower end of the totem poles that really not only do they do the yeoman's work in an organization to keep things humming, but they also have incredible deep insight into what's really going on in the C-suite or behind the scenes. And you can learn from those people. Super lesson. Yeah. So, yeah. The last thing we want to do today, Jeff, is give you a chance to do some time travel. So you get a chance to now go and bump into Jeff at 21 and give him some advice. What would your advice to him be then? Uh, my advice would be to learn from everyone. Don't get into the habit of just being fawning with the ones that have big titles or big paychecks. Um, go, you know, look at every single person that you interact with in your community, your organization, your network, and think of them as being able to offer you something. Mm, awesome advice. So every day is a school day. Exactly. You know, and I, hopefully learned how to be a student along the way and I'll never stop. <laughs> Great stuff. So what is it you're working on next, Jeff? Um, the things that most interest me now are taking leaders from sort of more traditional environments like finance and software and, 
and integrating them into the more eco-sustainable world that's happening out in the um, with those with organizations that are environmentally uh, more attuned to what's going on with our climate change and the planet and all. You know, we need to integrate these things, um, and so. My one of my passions is helping my leaders that I work with get more in tune with with the broader impact that their organizations are having on the on the planet. Like if we look at, you know, all the crazy stuff that's happening with the climate. Exactly. Yeah. And we, we just don't have the luxury anymore of saying, oh, well, that's all in the energy department. You know, I'm in finance. I don't have anything to do with that. Well, you know, downstream. It's all one stream, right? So my passion is trying to get my leaders in all these different places to become more in tune with how they have impacts in the world, not just impacts inside their organization. Love it, yeah. You know, and it's a challenge, but we coaches, we have a role to play. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping, gonna, hopefully going to do my part. Good for you. So if our listeners want to get hold of a copy of Flex or they wanted to learn a bit more about the work that you do, Jeff, where's the best place for us to send them? Uh, my own website under my name, Jeffrey Hull, H-U-L-L, jeffreyhull.com. We'll have a lot of information and access to the book. Obviously, the book is available on Amazon and all the other you know, outlets that we find our books these days. Um, and then I would also encourage folks to look up the instituteofcoaching.org. I'm there as part of the leadership team. There's a lot of interesting resources. Um, so those are probably the best places to go. Wonderful. And we make sure that those links are in our show notes as well. Great. Appreciate that. Jeff, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, I, I love the energy that you bring to the subject and I love the work that you're doing. And I just wanted to say thank you for being part of our community. Well, it's my pleasure. It's always a, uh, good to uh, spread the word on what kind of leaders we all want to develop into and develop into the world bring into the world these days because it's there's a certain amount of urgency i think <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> we're so. going to save the planet and ourselves along the way very well said thanks for coming on the show jeff my pleasure thanks for having me i genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too we do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush and I've been the Leadership Hacker. <laughs>